I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. And we're back for part two and take two <laughs> with Celeste again. You guys, we recorded this entire thing. We had like an, an, an hour into the conversation, and we realized we forgot to hit record. So, <laughs> <laughs> I feel so dumb because we did so good. And <laughs> I'm, I have to make all the fucking same jokes all over again. I'm going to, and then poor Celeste is going to have to sit through them a second time. <laughs> oh, well, it'll be great. It'll be great. Well, let's hope. <laughs> All right, so where we left off on part one, Dawn got on the bus and made it to Oregon. She had just gotten away from John, out of his reach, and she's on the bus on her way to Oregon. So finally feeling a sense of safety, she can't help but let her guard down that guard that was constantly keeping her safe well she's no longer in physical danger so now she's kind of allowing herself to feel the emotions of the heartbreak she just lost the person she loved it was like a warm love where this guy treated her precious and he told her she was beautiful remember she bought her teddy bears and roses and jewelry and she thought that was all proof that he cared about her by this point it had been five years since don and john first began the relationship so don is now 20 years old Still, John's the only thing she's known for the past five years, so it's not like anybody's taught her how to be an adult. She dropped out of school and cut off contact with everyone she knew, so she pretty much has been in John's shadow this whole time. He's kept her hidden from anyone until it was time to sell her for sex. So the only interaction she ever got was with her little dog, Thor. And sadly, when she left John, she had to leave Thor behind, too. I think that's probably even more devastating than anything because he was probably such a such a real friend to her. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but she to him. She actually said in her book that she felt really guilty because Thor loved John until he started abusing him. And then Thor was terrified of him. So she felt really guilty for leaving this poor little her little baby mm -hmm. alone with him. Poor thing. Now that Donna's in Oregon with her family, she can't bear to tell them the extent of the abuse. She only tells them that it was really bad. And at this point, she feels really stupid for letting John convince her that they didn't care about her. Like, he completely pulled the wool over her eyes, and now that she's home and she sees that everybody's been, like, waiting for her and wondering about her, she realizes, like, she could have reached out a long time ago. She gets a job at a hospital, and she begins to make friends, but she still has nightmares often. Remember, she's dealing with the trauma from the abuse, and also drug withdrawals. Let's not forget about her childhood traumas, too. I mean, everything's probably just piled in there. Mm -hmm. She's got severe abandonment issues, so I think mm -hmm. that's in part what makes it difficult for her to let go of John. Absolutely. John gets a hold of their phone number, and he starts calling and calling, looking for her every day. And every time anybody answers the phone, John demands that they just tell him to go fuck himself. But little by little, John starts charming everybody. He starts charming Don's mom and her sister. And his little brother's still like, the whole time he's like, I don't like that guy. But still, he knows how to charm women. I mean, you have to think about it this way. I always say that, like, trained actors, like, of course they're going to be professionals because that's their job, is to become whoever they're told to be. So they're, they would be the perfect psychopaths if that's who they were internally, you know what I mean? It's their job to learn to observe people's uh, mannerisms and how to like influence people. But just think about the fact that like John's job is to seduce women. 
You know, that's particularly the role he always plays. So that's, you have to wonder how he, uh, I can't remember what book I read, but there was a quote that said he would quite literally charm the pants off of your mom. That's gross. I also just want to say that I think he was probably so high on so many drugs that he probably did a lot of convincing with that as well, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons people didn't realize it was a problem. He just, he knew how to how to fake things until it got out of hand. Mm-hmm. So little by little, when Don's mom and sister, Etta and Terry, they answer the phone and he gets them to talk to him a little bit longer each time. And he explains how sorry he is. And Terry absolutely can't believe that things got as bad as Don is making him out to be. Because remember, Terry didn't even like John at first, but he charmed her. So she's convinced, like, it must have been the drugs because that wasn't who he was when I knew him. But she probably didn't know if he was on drugs at that point. Eventually, Terry tells John about Don's work schedule, and he starts timing his phone calls for right when Don gets home from work. But everybody else has just gone, gone to bed already. Where is the parental saving there? There's no protection there from her at all. She just does not believe her, do- her own daughter. Yeah, and I don't know if it's maybe because maybe herself, even she gave off crackhead energy. And mm-hmm. maybe maybe they just weren't taking her seriously. Maybe it's because she was young and they were like, oh, this could be any kind of drama. Or maybe they just truly couldn't believe, like, what on earth could be so bad? Like, talking to him, he's so sorry. So what on earth could be so unforgivable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't blame her mom. I kind of feel like maybe her mom was a romantic and, like, you see what happened with her and her husband. Her husband completely, like, took advantage of her and had all these side chicks the whole time. And she was still, like, waiting for him in lingerie. I think these women really didn't fathom that this was that bad. Yeah. So, with John calling her all the time, she finds it harder and harder not to listen to his voice and his warm words. Because he's telling her really sweet things, like, that he loves her and that he's sorry, and it was all the drugs and he's done with them. He just wants to start over and go back to how things were in the beginning. And that's literally all that Dawn wants. I mean, she doesn't want, think about it this way. Like, she doesn't want to accept that this whole relationship wasn't real because at the time, he was her hero, her savior. When she had nobody and her dad left her behind, he was the one person who, not just took care of her and fed her, but loved her. And, like, made her feel like not just a kid, that it was an obligation to feed and take care of her, but, like, she was beautiful and special and precious. You know what I mean? Mm, And I think she was just feeling so lost. And maybe a part of her was almost, like, in a weird way, stir-crazy, because she's like, I don't know if I want to be with him, and I don't know if I need this fresh start. And I don't know, but, you know, he wants exactly what I want, so I should just go with my heart sort of thing. Yeah, and I think also when people have abandonment issues like that, they start to question their self-worth and wonder Mm -hmm. why people can't stick around them. And I think John convinced her of that, that nobody wanted her, and he did. And therefore, there was probably a little piece of her inside that told her, like, if you don't go with this one guy who loves the hell out of you and really sees all your flaws as beautiful, then you're never going to find another love like that again. Like, nobody's ever going to love you like that, you know? Which, I mean, that's so crazy, but, I mean, he's such a narcissist, such a, like, piece of shit that he could probably make anyone believe anything. And she's, again, still so young, too. Yeah, but that's also the thing with 
abandonment issues that maybe we don't talk about enough in true crime. Like, it's literally when every person in your life who's supposed to look out for you or take care of you, like every adult or every police officer, just every every authority figure in your life fails you and they make you question whether you're worthy or not, you know? They make you think you're not worth saving. Like, look at Charles Manson. Like, Charles Manson, when he was a baby, his mom tried to sell him for beer, and he was just passed around and passed around, and then he ended up building a narcissistic personality because that, that's how that happens. They create, like, a fantasy life to make themselves important, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just sad because maybe if so many people ha- don't fail those, like, if they weren't failed by everybody who should have taken care of them, things might be different because it'd be different. It's different when you're an adult, you know, but when you're a child, they're literally putting into your brain that you're not worthy to yeah. anybody. And you start right. to question whether you'd be better off without them or something mm-hmm. or yeah. they'd be better off without you. Mm-hmm. I agree. So yeah, like all Dawn is thinking about is she's not in that immediate, immediate danger anymore. So that sting of the abuse is kind of fading away. And she's starting to think about, I mean, she's going through something difficult. She's going through withdrawals and nightmares, and she misses this person who used to hold her and take care of her and um, and be there for her. And that's what she's holding on to. She's She remembers that he was good at one point. So when he tells her that he just wants to go to start over and go back to the beginning, she thinks that's exactly what she wants to do. And in her head, she thinks that everything would everything would be fine if he would stop doing drugs. So then... John even puts Thor on the phone, the little dog, and, like, makes her feel super guilty, like, oh, don't you miss your mommy? Like, talk to your mommy, and the little puppy's whimpering, so, of course, she she gets this huge guilt trip. Of course. Poor thing. I know. That's her baby, and it's, like I said, it's not just that she misses her baby, but she probably feels like I was his only protector, and I abandoned him. She, that, she probably took that extra personally, you know? She took that extra seriously. Mm-hmm. So eventually, John tells her on the phone, excitedly, that he's got the opportunity of a lifetime. It's a big job, and it would take care of everything. But he says, I need you here with me so we can take off together as soon as it's done. Dawn also tells him she wants to go back to how it was in the beginning, and she agrees she'll go back if he promises that there will be no more hitting, no more prostitution, or abuse. We'll see about that. Well... He makes that promise, so she agrees. She gets on a plane, and I don't know if they straight up said it or if it was just implied. It sounds like she was under the understanding that he was going to at least stop freebasing. But when she got to the airport and she saw him, he looked super distracted and sketchy. Like, from afar, she could see him like that. And they go to the baggage claim, and she points out her bag, and he grabs it, but along with it, he swipes a second random bag. So now he's just stealing random people's luggage what like, a, doesn't know what's in it just so he can go like sell it sell it for drug money so john and john get back to him uh to a motel and right away john pulls out his own little personal suitcase that he would take everywhere with him and that's where he carried all his paraphernalia and he started freebasing right in front of don so don's just kind of like defeated and she's like uh she tells herself like maybe it's not that bad <laughs> It's not of what course, I believe. Of course, she doesn't want to accept that she just made this huge mistake leaving her family and her new job and her new friends behind. Well, of course so not. That she night, wanted to get that fresh start. She was trying to get her her, her whole fresh start for herself and new beginning. And she, she did it. it was, and she did it. And then she went back with the hopes. And then, boom. Mm-hmm. 
So that night, John got dressed and told her, this is it, baby, I love you, before he headed out for his big job. Man, and this is some shit. Dawn just got back, and she spends her first night in the motel, and he's like, okay, bye. And then guess what happens? She gets a knock on the door at the motel, telling her it's time to check out. Because John hadn't paid for any more nights. John only paid for that one night, and then he left her there. Oh, that's cute. So she has no money, she has no means, like nothing, and... That's great. She didn't even want to be there. Oh, my God. Poor thing. Yeah, so Dawn gets out of the motel with her little dog and her her um, her duffel bag, and she's pretty much forced to sit out on the street, and there's, like, guys, like, pimps, literally, like, ogling at her and trying to get her to, like, come over to them. And she starts sobbing, like, thinking about the life that she just made for herself in Oregon and left behind. So after a while, a nice Christian lady pulls up. Her name is Sally. And she's, she rolls down her window and she tells her, like, you can't stay out here. But she tells her, like, I run a youth group. Come back with me. I'm going to offer you a place to stay and, like, help you figure this out. And poor Dawn's just like, my boyfriend left me here. I don't know where he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she stays at Sally's house for a couple days. The whole time she's there, she's calling and calling John's answering service because, remember, he doesn't have a phone. So she's just leaving a message is like, where the fuck are you? What the fuck did you do? Like, how could you leave me there? And P.S. Here's where I am. Please come get me. What the fuck? Ah, why didn't he get her after the job? So aside from leaving John all these messages, she's also hoping like, like maybe he's left me a message. Like maybe something's happened to him, giving him the def- def- benefit of the doubt. But he also isn't leaving messages for her, like letting her know where he is. So this big job that, (laughs) this is hard to say. So this big job that John is on is where the Wonderland gang comes in. The Wonderland gang was another group of people from whom John bought drugs. These people let John come over and they would share their drugs with him. But as always, John was a huge mooch and he just got on everybody's nerves. And I guess these weren't people who were like particularly impressed with John because Yeah, John was a porn star, but at this house, he was just this fucking annoying guy with a big dick. So they would treat him like a jester and make him pull his dick out for people. Like somebody would be like in, it's just like in the movie where somebody was like, are you John Holmes? And he's like, no. And then Ron is like, yeah, you are. Show him. Pull out your dick. Like he was a party trick. That's crazy. He's a party trick. Yeah, but John never stopped coming back. Well, yeah, because he got free drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So they ended up using him as an errand boy and allowed him to, to deliver drugs for them. They trusted him to do that? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I said. I think they didn't maybe just have him do deliveries. I think they also... So the way it's described in all the podcasts and the movies and everything is that John introduced them to Eddie Nash one night and, like, everything happened there. But it was actually over, like, four or five months because the Wonderland gang liked to use China White Heroin. And Eddie Nash, he wasn't the only salesman, but he was the best dealer of China White Heroin. So I think that's why they kept John around because it wasn't just a one-time thing. It was it was over months. So I'm thinking the Wonderland gang probably, like, had in mind that they were going to sell some of these drugs, but they also enjoyed using heroin. Well, for sure, and I think that's probably the only way they could probably get, like, the best of the best, I'm assuming, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially at that time. And knowing his, I, I guess we'll call it his fame, knowing he had all those clubs and whatnot, he had all those connections, so. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, of all the things that I've read, I, I definitely think, and a lot of people think that 
there's no other reason they would have kept John around. They didn't like him. And John didn't like them either. I mean, he didn't, he really didn't like Ron Lanius because he, you know, well, he's a bully. Like a little clown. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, he's a bully. A bully. I mean, I don't think John's a good person at all, but I also don't think I I don't think uh, Ron Lanius is probably the best person either. But I oh, think no. either way, making somebody a party trick, regardless if they're a cracker or not, is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me tell you about about Ron Lanius and the Wonderland Gang. So the people who lived in the home were Joy Miller. She was the owner of the home, and her boyfriend Bill Devril. And they lived there with Ron Lanius and Ron's wife, Susan Lanius. So it was the four of them. Ron Lanius was a Vietnam veteran who had been dishonorably discharged from the Air Force when he was caught smuggling heroin in the body bags of fallen soldiers. That's craziness. Yeah, that's so that's so dark. I mean, any any body bags, but then the body bags of soldiers who like (laughs) that's super dark. That's crazy. So apart from those four, there were a couple other people who were temporarily staying in the home. Um, One was David Lind. He was a biker and a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. I believe that he and Ron met in prison. And David brought with him his girlfriend, Barbara Butterfly Richardson. Every time I hear David Lind, I think of this episode of Friends where (laughs) this is so stupid. They find out that Rachel's pregnant, but she doesn't want anybody to know. So instead, Phoebe pretends that she's pregnant and she's like, oh, yeah, but the guy, he just he's not in the picture. So Joey comes in mad like he's going to beat him up. And he's like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. And Phoebe's like, David Lynn <laughs> just oh like comes God. up with his name. And Joey's like, David Lynn, David Lynn. And he like run. He like rushes out like he's going to go look for him. And then Rachel and Monica look at him and they're like, who's David Lynn? And Phoebe's like, just some guy from the gym that I don't really like. Oh, no. Anyway, (laughs) so Eddie Nash would accept all kinds of things in exchange for drugs, and the Wonderland gang had recently come into possession of some antique guns and jewelry. The problem was that these guns were too rare and likely stolen, so Nash wasn't going to be able to sell them. But because John was his buddy, he agreed to give them uh, to give them some heroin to sell and then pay him back a thousand dollars to buy their stuff back. So it's kind of like a pawn shop situation. But instead of selling the drugs, it seems that the Wonderland gang ended up using all of them. Like, take they all took them, or they all took them and sold them to other people? They all ingested them? Party yeah. hard? Yeah, oh it God. seems that they all ingested <laughs> them. But it's not super clear what exactly started this all. But here's mm-hmm. a couple of scenarios, and, and, and I'll kind of break them down. So somewhere in this deal with Eddie and the Wonderland gang, and John is the middleman, the deal got messed up, and Ron Lanius and Bill Deverell beat John up. That's what we know. Some sources say that the gang used up all their drugs instead of selling them, and in a drug-induced paranoia, they kind of convinced themselves that Eddie Nash was stealing their shit out from under them. Eddie Nash was stealing from the Wonderland gang? Yeah, that they just decide, he's just, just deciding, yeah, I told you I'd give you your guns back, but I changed my mind. Like, oh, they convinced okay. themselves that he was fucking them over. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly. <laughs> in all reality, Eddie Nash wouldn't give a fuck about $1,000. He would have... Like, yeah. forgotten about it by now. No way, yeah, I agree. Another scenario that I find more likely is that John was sent to retrieve the guns from Eddie Nash. Like, maybe they gave him money and were like, hey, go get our guns back. But instead, he goes and he takes the money and he buys himself cocaine. I believe that one 100. Yep, that's the one. So then he goes back to the Wonderland house and they beat the shit out of him. Like, where's our fucking money or where's our fucking guns? 
And John basically told them, yeah, Eddie Nash just decided he's going to keep the money and the drugs. He just threw his buddy under the bus. Oh, well, you know, that's just what you do when somebody's your brother. Mm. And it turns out they were actually friends for like three years now. And like, you know, Eddie Nash was nice to his customers because, like I said, he would put that two-way mirror um, so he could watch them and then leave temptation right in front of them so he could, like, kind of assess what you would take and would not take, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and he was calling John brother. Like, John must have passed all the tests. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is he's probably done so much to show him, like, oh, yeah, I'm your loyal brother. I'm your, you know, I'm your guy. I've got your back. Like, I absolutely Mm -hmm. believe that. Absolutely. Yeah, I and he I would throw anyone under the bus. I do too. And I bet John probably was playing by all the rules in the beginning and passing all the tests because he was scared of Nash, not because he respected him so much. And I think maybe that's where where Nash made the mistake. He he was kind of starting to see him as a friend now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we don't know exactly what happened, but yeah, we know that somewhere in the process, John fucked up the drug deal. And we do know from like what Don will say later that he did have a big brick of cocaine at some point that he was trying to sell. And did he get that through this Wonderland gang? That's what we don't know, but where else, you know, it, it mm-hmm. the timelines add up. Cause Absolutely. this, the day that he leaves Dawn at the hotel, I want to say is June 28th. So it's just like a few days before, like maybe four to five days. That's why he's not showing up. That's why he didn't go back to pick her up. Cause he's busy doing he's this. Busy. Love him. So, yeah, that's the timeline. About June 28th, John, uh, Dawn gets kicked out of the hotel and she goes to this lady Sally's house and John plans this robbery with Eddie Nash. He told Dawn he had a big job, so it must have been that he already had the plan to do the job. And he went and he picked her up and then he went and did the robbery. I believe it. Okay. That sounds, that that sounds yeah. I'm trying to figure out the timeline here. Yeah, that makes, yeah, that sounds right. Since the Wonderland gang was pissed at John now, they were telling him to make it right. And John was saying, well, this was all Eddie Nash's, Eddie Nash's fault, so I have the perfect solution. We just go over to his house and we take the guns back. And there's also money and drugs. So John agreed that he was going to go to Eddie Nash's house and purchase cocaine. And on the way out, he was going to leave the door unlocked for the Wonderland gang, uh, for the Wonderland gang to sneak in later. He even drew them a map and he outlined where Eddie kept his safe and where the bodyguard slept and everything important like that. Before they left, the gang put on liquid band-aid, liquid band-aids on their fingers so that they wouldn't leave any fingerprints. Why would they use liquid band-aids? That's so unusual. I don't know. I guess because it's a barrier. You just peel it off later. I don't know. That's so weird. <laughs> I know. I, I guess it was one of the girls' idea, which the girls... um. Barbara Richardson and Joy Miller, they weren't violent and they weren't involved in the drug dealing, but I guess they were there during these meetings about the robbery. Know what I mean? Yeah, me too. Or if they've helped with other crimes. That would be so interesting to find out. Yeah, well, it seems like Susan and Joy didn't even like the idea. Well, no, it seems like Susan didn't like the idea of selling drugs. Mm -hmm. But Joy, she definitely was doing drugs with, like, other friends and shit. And I'll I'll talk more about her a little bit later. Okay. So on June 29th, 1981, the Wonderland Gang gave John... (laughs) It's so hard to say that. The Wonderland Gang gave John John $400 to purchase cocaine from Eddie Nash. He ended up spending the next six hours with Nash and freebasing through all $400. 
At the end of the night, he left the sliding back door unlocked so that the gang could come back later. And when he got back to the Wonderland house, he found everybody was asleep because they were all using heroin all night and because he was gone for six hours. <laughs> so he wakes them all up like, come on, it's time to go rob Eddie Nash. Oh, my God. They're all wasted. <laughs> mm-hmm. So three hours later, they all got up and they were ready to go rob Eddie Nash. But first, they made John go back. <laughs> They're always sending John oh to be, God. like, the risk taker to make sure that the door was still unlocked and that Eddie was still asleep. So he goes back, opens the door, and he's like, uh, sorry, I forgot something, and leaves, again, leaving the door open and makes sure everybody's asleep. And as he heads out of the house, he sees the Wonderland gang approaching in their car, and he raises his fist in the air, and he said, It's time! Get them, boys! Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's be not discreet at all. Which that's one of the things where John will say later that he feels guilty. This feels like he doesn't feel guilty. This seems like he not thinks he's all. a fucking cowboy or something, you know? Yeah, totally. So the gang busted in the house yelling that they were the police. They had fake badges and everything. And they attacked Eddie Nash and his 300-pound bodyguard, Greg Diles. And they tied him up and absolutely humiliated them. They found the, the heroin and they used it right there during the attack. Which sounds smart, right? Just get high in the middle of it. Yeah, why not? I mean... Mm -hmm. If they're going to do that, why even pretend to be police? You know, they live life at its fullest. <laughs> <laughs> Taking big risks here. Big risks. At one point, I think it's Ron that bumps into David Lynn and he accidentally fires his gun. And he doesn't hit anybody, but it gets close enough to hitting um, Greg Diles that they said that it caused powder burns that were deep enough to cause bleeding. I think that is one of the craziest facts I've ever heard about that story. Like, I I would never assume that it, and they said that it looked like real, like, like enough blood that it looked like a bullet hit it. Yeah, it probably hurt. It probably hurt, and the gunshot was enough to make um, Eddie Nash start sobbing. Like, he fell to the floor and was freaking out. Because, yeah, at this point, you probably think, oh, they're really gonna fucking kill me now. It's not just yeah. a robbery. They'll kill it's me. It's over. They put handcuffs on Greg Diles and they threw a rug over his head, like like a fucking canary, so that he couldn't see what was happening. And then they stuck a gun in Eddie Nash's mouth and they told him that they were going to kill him. So Nash was sobbing and he gave in. He told them where everything was. He told them the code to the safe, everything. Afterwards, the gang went back to Wonderland and they split their loot. But before they did that, they put away about $100,000 so they could pretend they didn't have, they didn't get as much and therefore there was less money to split between all of them. So the deal was there was three of them that committed the robbery and then there was John who, you know, just set it up. And then there was another guy named Tracy McCourt. He was the getaway driver. And Tracy, he seemed like just like a young, naive guy who he got himself into a situation that maybe he didn't, he was in over his head. In fact, he was going to participate in the robbery, but apparently at the last minute, David Lynn took the gun out of his hand and was like, nope, you're going to, you're the getaway driver. So all he did was get away. Yeah. He didn't live at the house, but he had been staying there for like five nights. Okay. So he's just there on a bender hanging out with his homies and this is what he Exactly. <laughs> right. So the deal was that because there was five of them, but John and Tracy didn't do the hard part. Like they didn't, they weren't the ones taking the risk. Everybody would get 25% and the last 25% would be split between John and Tracy. That makes sense to me. <laughs> if you do that type of work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean. Yeah, what do I know? 
I mean, I guess it works. (laughs) So aside from the $100,000, they came out with eight pounds of cocaine, 5,000 quaaludes, a kilo of China white heroin, and $10,000 in cash was what they had, like, admitted to finding, plus jewelry worth $150,000. That's crazy. Bill Deverell started calling up every one of his clients trying to move the stash. John went home with $3,000 and a pinky ring, and he knew he was being shorted because he knew how much Eddie Nash was worth. Still, he took his share of the money and his drugs, and he went out to find Don. A week fucking later. <laughs> yeah, it's been like two or three days at this point. <laughs> so Don is still staying at with this Christian lady, and this Christian lady like gave her a place to stay and like gave her a little job painting houses to earn her keep. But Don's just freaking out because she doesn't she doesn't know what's going on. You know, she doesn't know anybody. So John finally checks his messages and he finds out where she is, and he just strolls up to this lady's house like a big shot. And he walks in, says hello, and almost immediately asks if he and Don can go use the bathroom. That's so gross. they go to the Yeah, this is how the movie Wonderland starts. I so remember. They, so they go to the bathroom and he shows her a huge brick of cocaine and he prepares their lines for them. They do their lines and they start removing their clothes and having sex in Sally's bathroom. So in the movie, Sally starts banging on the bathroom door and kicks them out of her house. But in real life, it was worse, I think. So John and Don are having sex in the bathroom, and then somebody knocks on the door. And they assume it's Sally, but it's actually Sally's sister, Pam. John looks her up and down and decides that she's cool, and he asks her if she'd like a pick-me-up. Don's coming out of the out of the bathroom, and John goes back into the bathroom with this lady, Pam. And Don's just like, I guess I'll fucking sit out here. John ends up spending all night in the bathroom with this lady. You're joking. I would be so pissed. Yeah, I think Dawn was just like, I, Poor I don't Dawn. care anymore. I think she was just... Yeah, Dawn is done. I think there was no point in fighting, because what? She's just going to get her ass beat, and then she still has to stay with him. Right. But Sally was like, who the fuck is this guy? Get out of my bathroom. Like, mm-hmm. get away from my sister. And like, yeah, who the fuck dude. are you? Yeah, dude, you're disrespecting my house of, like, God here. He was supposed to be there to pick up Don. And not just that. Sa- Every time that Don tried to call him, Sally was like, are you sure you want to go back to him? Like, he abandoned you. Like, is he the right guy? Like, so she's she's freaking out. <laughs> oh, my God. The next morning, John finally came out of the bathroom with lipstick all over his neck. And so Pam weird. had her clothes so all disheveled. Mm-hmm. And Pam looked faded as fuck, but she also looked like she was trying really hard to act super casual, like too casual. She's like sitting on the floor reading her magazine, acting like she didn't just spend the night with some random dude in a bathroom. Trifling. <laughs> I swear to God, trifling asshole. Do that with his lady right there. Absolutely not. Both of them disgusting. I'm just questioning, Dawn's been there for days waiting for her boyfriend to pick her up. Like, who did Pam think this guy was? Like, right? Like, oh my God. I don't, I, (laughs) I cannot. So Sally furiously kicks him out of her house, calling John the devil. And poor Dawn was embarrassed because she was sad. She lost another friend, another ally. Mm -hmm. So John checks them into another motel and tells Dawn, well, this is it, Dawn, the big one. And... It seems to her that he's just planning on selling the Coke. And I think that's what he thought he was going to do. 
but his dumbass wore the pinky ring that he stole from Eddie Nash. <laughs> he wore it out in public. So Greg Dials picks him up outside of his answering service, and he's like, okay, so you're the reason we have no more fucking drugs at our party house. And I just want to say, like, I think of all things to get, getting a pinky ring is so funny. I don't know why that makes me think that's funny, but it's so funny. It's so 70s, but I think it was also such a John thing. Yeah, that's so funny. He, like, he I'm just going to so walk around. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to walk around with my flashy ass pinky ring like a day fucking later, a couple days later, and like bump into the same people. Like, oh, that's not conspicuous. That's not obvious. Like, come on, bro. Mm-hmm. So the next few days are kind of up for debate. The thing is, Eddie Nash and Dials had both been, like, Nash was not only robbed, but they were both humiliated. So he vowed to take revenge on the people who attacked him. Like, they made him cry, you know? And I mean, I'm sure that, like, tore him up in a sense of him not feeling, like, man enough to take care and protect himself and be like, you know, I don't know. He probably had never had a situation like that prior. Mm, he thought he was going to die. Yeah. He's super powerful. I don't think anybody ever dared do that to him. I was going to say, I mean, who would want to go up against him knowing him, like, what he's, you know, got, like, who he's connected to and whatnot? Mm -hmm. And that was another thing that David Lynn had, like, said that he, that they didn't know that the person they were robbing was Eddie Nash. But according to Tracy McCourt, the getaway driver, he said they knew the whole, over those four or five months they were doing business. So they knew who they were, who they were robbing. Mm -hmm. They knew. I'm guessing they just had every intention of blaming John if any, anything were to happen. Mm -hmm. So on June 30th, 1981, the day after the robbery, John was spotted wearing his pinky ring and Greg Dials basically dragged him into a car by his afro and took him back to Nash's house. And Nash was back at home entertaining guests, but, you know, they had almost no drugs left. So he had like a couple friends over and they were like smoke, like freebasing Eddie's secret stash, secret stash. Nash's stash. That's funny. And meanwhile, that's so clever. <laughs> and meanwhile, Eddie had sent out a couple of his of his goons, like to try to find more drugs. And that's when they fucking ran into John Holmes wearing the pinky ring. So while Eddie's at home entertaining guests, one of these guests was actually Scott Thorson, who was dating Liberace. This is a really interesting story. I'm not going to get into it, but he wrote a book which was turned into a movie, and it's called Behind the Candelabra. Candelabra behind the candelabra and it's about scott thorson was in a relationship with liberace he was like his little lover boy that he kind of kept secret and then he like forced him to get surgery to look like him and then he decided he didn't like him anymore he wanted younger guys now and scott thorson was basically the first person to like successfully sue for palimony and like took off with millions of dollars new idea for your next episode you're right scott thorson was heavily addicted to drugs as well Here's a quote from him. He said, I was introduced to Eddie Nash through Liberace and his friend Chris Cox. We decided to go into the club business with Eddie. You know, during the 70s and 80s, it was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But we didn't realize at the time how dangerous Eddie Nash was. He was the drug lord of Los Angeles. He was a very powerful man. He supplied a lot of stars with drugs. He was supplying Kathy Smith with the cocaine and heroin that killed John Belushi. He needed me because I knew Richard Pryor, Red Fox, and Flip Wilson, who were big customers. We had the best coke in town, and we were supplying it to Hollywood. I'm going to have to look into that about John Belushi. 
I was going to say, that's kind of crazy because I wonder if he was involved with, I mean, obviously they say that depth, but if he was as big as he was and he had the clubs that he had, like there had to be other celebrities getting drugs from him. Well, yeah, because he had the best drugs. There was nobody mm-hmm. else. So that was the thing. Thorson said, like, he was the perfect middleman because they knew that he wasn't like John Holmes. He was somebody that they could trust. So anyway, Scott Thorson happens to be in Eddie Nash's bedroom with him, freebasing, when all of a sudden Dials busts in, like, dragging John Holmes. And, you know, they realized that he was behind everything. Because of his pinky ring. Mm-hmm. So over the next 18 hours, Nash threw him across the room, shoved him against the wall, and tied him to a chair. He went back and forth between sobbing and screaming at him, saying, How could you do this to me? And I trusted you. I gave you everything. He took out his 357 and smacked John, busting his lip. He got a hold of his address book and started flipping through the names and saying things like, Who's this? Who's Mary in Ohio? Who's this and that? Is this your mother? I'm going to fucking kill everybody you know. He threatened to kill John's mom, his wife, Sharon. He threatened to kill Don, everything. John gave him up. He was like, it was the Wonderland murder. It was the Wonderland house. They live at this fucking house on Wonderland Avenue. He told him everything. He would throw anybody under the bus. He threw both of the people under his, both of those peoples under his bus. Wonderland and Eddie Nash. Mm Mm-hmm. Nash started calling everybody he knew, telling him that he was holding John Holmes hostage and he was torturing him, inviting him over to watch. John said that 50 or 60 people were parading in and out watching. But, you know, John exaggerates. I think there were other witnesses, but remember, they're not... Nobody's going to testify about Eddie Nash. So if other people... If there were 50 or 60 people there, nobody would ever admit to it. After they beat the shit out of him for, like, the whole day, Eddie sent John and three men to the Wonderland house to get revenge and recover his belongings. With him being there for as long as he was, was he even conscious? Like, I'm curious to know how, if that was even a longer, like, we'll call it a a semi-hostage situation. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like there's, he's so, with the mafia, like, he had people watch him beat him up and stuff like that. Like, because didn't he have all his friends over and everything like that at times? Mm Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, he did. But since he was low on drugs, he didn't have a lot of people over until they found him. And he started inviting him over just to watch, basically. Oh, wow. I think he probably was in and out of consciousness. But Eddie was involved in organized crime. Like, the point wasn't to kill him. It was to torture him. It was to get a Mm -hmm. message across, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why he did the whole Wonderland thing. And he didn't... He. He could have killed John, but he didn't because the whole thing is a message. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, I get like that. It could be worse than killing you. I'll have you on the run for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So Nash sent John and the three guys to the Wonderland house to get revenge and to recover his belongings. And John claims that he wasn't there for the killings, but that Nash ordered him to go to the crime scene after the killings, likely to make John look guilty. But John switches his story back and forth. So he w- he was either there during the killings or after the killings. But what is believed for the most part is that John was held at gunpoint by one guy as the other two brutally attacked the people in the home with steel pipes. They went around the house and they bashed everyone's skulls in. They were beaten so badly that the metal threading on the pipes had imprinted on their skin and on their bones. Their heads were bashed in and their faces were unrecognizable. There was so much blood, it was said that it looked like buckets of blood were thrown all over the walls and the carpets. 
the brutality was compared to that of Sharon Tate and the LaBianca murders. That's crazy. And I also heard that this is the first crime scene that was actually ever, like, televised in a courtroom or, or published in a courtroom, I guess we could say. I know now it's, like, you can kind of find it anywhere if you look. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to upload it on the website. <laughs> but it, it was the first crime scene where, like, they came and they videotaped everything. And it was the first time they allowed footage to be used as evidence. That's very interesting. So none of these people left any evidence at the crime scene except John. But remember, John was at that house all the time. But there was a palm print that was left on the rail of a bed, like right behind Ron Lanius's head. So it looked as if like John had held on to this railing to steady himself with one hand while using the other one to swing down on him with the pipe. And let's be honest, after being Ron's party trick, I, I guarantee you... He probably denied it, but I definitely think he did it because of him being the party trick. Well, I think he knows that he's the only one who will talk. So if he doesn't tell anybody, nobody will ever know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, whether John did or didn't beat Ron, like if he did, we don't know if it was because he wanted to or if perhaps the Wonderland gang made him participate in order to frame him later. It could be. It could be. I don't know. I mean, I definitely think that all... All those people were, like, probably going to turn on turn on each other at some point. Mm-hmm. Bill Deverell, Ron Lanius, Joy Miller, and Barbara Richardson were all killed that night. There was one survivor, Susan Lanius, but she was barely hanging by a thread. David Lind actually wasn't home during the murders. He was actually spending the night in a motel on a drug binge with a male prostitute. Mm-mm. And left his lady there. Yeah, it was sad. She was only 22, and he even said she didn't deserve this, like, implying somebody else did do something to deserve it, but she never, like, she never did anything to deserve anything like this. It mm-hmm. kind of implied, like, she wasn't a criminal like the rest of them. She probably wasn't. She probably was just there to party and, like, be with her man. Mm-hmm. So there were neighbors who said they, they heard commotion from the house, but they ignored it because that wasn't unusual to hear a lot of noises from the Wonderland house. They didn't have, like huge parties because they were paranoid drug addicts so they they were careful about like who who they let into their little group but they did have at least four to six people living in this house at any given time when neighbors did hear noises they didn't think it was anything suspicious so like one lady even like turned her tv louder to like drown the noise out it's wild because like you've seen this house right these houses are super Mm -hmm. close together but you know what i'm thinking that they probably even though they only had the people that they normally had or whatever, I guarantee you they always had music playing. They had loud-ass conversations. They were yelling. They were singing whatever, you know. They're living their best life. Of course, the neighbors are going to want to turn up the TV or turn up the radio, whatever. And I'm I'm assuming that they probably, even if it was a middle of the night, I feel like there had to be some background noise too, right? To make them turn mm-hmm. the TV up, not to hear the screams the way that they were really screaming or something. Maybe it sounded drowned out. Maybe. And, like, also, this house had balconies on the second and the third floor. So they would, like, toss the drugs down from the balcony, and then the customers would toss the drugs back up. And, like, once in a while, they probably yelled down to each other. Like, they probably had disagreements like that out in yeah. front of the house that neighbors just knew to tune yeah. it out. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. 
So remember how Bill Deverell had called up a bunch of people trying to, like, invite them to come over to sell the drugs? So the murder happened around, like, 2 or 3 a.m. in the early morning hours of July 1st. And the bodies wouldn't be discovered until about 4 p.m. So throughout these, like, 13 or 14 hours, a bunch of customers started showing up at the house to buy drugs. At least six to eight people went into the house in the hours between the murders and the discovery of the bodies, but nobody called the police or tried to help. Okay, that just blows me away because of the crime scene and the pictures. I have not watched the entire crime scene, but for them to not even notice anything is beyond me. I don't think they didn't notice. I think they were trying to get the hell out of there because, I mean, if you stumble across a crime scene before the police find it, you probably think, this is going to look bad for me, but it's going to look worse if you were there to buy drugs. But I'm also wondering if some of them, because they're also crackheads, probably stealing some of the drugs and taking it and running. That's exactly what happened. They collected whatever drugs they could find, even though Susan Lanius survived. So she, she might've been in and out of consciousness, but she was moaning for help as like she was fading and they just grabbed what they could and they left. Around 4 p.m., some friends of Joy Miller came to the house to visit her. Joy was friends with a guy named Chuck Negron. I'm probably saying that right. Or I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, and his wife, Julia. But Chuck was the singer of the band Three Dog Night. And he was known for his heavy drug addiction. As it turns out, Joy had invited Chuck and Julia to come over and hang out on the night of the murders, but they didn't show up. Luckily... Because either Chuck or the Wonderland gang were hungover. In fact, if you look at the crime scene photos where you can see Barbara Richardson's body, Barbara Richardson's body, she was the one found in the living room, you can see behind her head that there are like uh, vinyl records. And the album in the front is one of Three Dog Nights albums. So it's theorized that they might have pulled that album out like ready to listen to it with Chuck and Julia. They're ready to listen to Joy to the World. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah was a bullfrog, but I was a good friend of mine. Da, da, da. <laughs> Celeste Trooper, because that's the second time. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia showed up with her friend B at the Wonderland House around 4 p.m., and they saw that the dogs were loose and there were flies everywhere. And then they found the dead bodies. So B went upstairs and he confirmed that all the house's residents had been attacked. Next door were a couple of furniture movers and Julia came out of the house and told them, there's some dead bodies in there. And then she called the police. All the reports for some reason say that they all say that the movers found the bodies and called the police, but it wasn't them. Like I said, there was six to eight people who actually found the bodies the movers were like Christopher Columbus. Oh, the, <laughs> and they're like, I found the bodies, but no, they're you, the ones you, you did not discover it. them. No, they yeah. might have called the police, but Julia says in her book that she's glad that she was the one that called the police. And Oh, and yeah. It was and I bet them. you if they had waited any longer, Susan may have passed. I mean. Can you imagine that, she was sitting there for like 13, 14 hours? How scary that must have been. But and, what a strong woman. Like, let's just be real. Like. Mm -hmm. She survived that. Like, I, I don't know if she's still alive to this day, but to survive that, even if she can't remember, which I mean, not to be terrible, but probably for the better. But I think that she like, like lived her life. Mm -hmm. 
which I mean, geez, can you imagine? Yeah, it makes me sad because, like I said, she was the one who it seems like she didn't really want to be a part of that life. But, you know, maybe she she was struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. When the police arrived, they discovered the bloodied body of 22 year old Barbara Butterfly Richardson lying on the ground next to the couch that she had been sleeping on. Joy Miller, the girlfriend of Bill Deverell, was found dead in her bed while Bill's body was slumped at the foot of the bed. A bloody hammer was found tangled in the sheets, and several metal pipes were on the floor. In another bedroom, Ron Lanius was beaten beyond recognition, and on the floor next to the bed was Susan, with her head bashed in and crying in pain, but alive. Susan would make a full recovery, but the brain damage caused her permanent amnesia, and she would not remember the details of the attack. Although I did read that she made out some details which supposedly could have described Greg Dials, but unclear. We can't say for certain. And at that time, I just want to say the, we'll say the investigatory skills, like they were probably not the best, probably not the cleanest. Mm -hmm. Like, because if they had six to eight people going in through the house, how, you know what I mean? Doesn't that add extra, like, oh, it could be this person. It could be that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. At about 3.30 in the morning, John showed up at the doorstep of his wife, Sharon, with his clothes all torn up and his body, his entire body covered in blood. He initially told her that he had been in an accident and he asked her if he could take a bath. But as she cleaned him up, she realized he didn't have any wounds, so the blood was not his. After a while, he admitted to her, I was at a murder and four people got killed in front of me. Somebody's after me. He explained that they had done Eddie Nash dirty and Nash killed them in revenge and that they were going to kill John's family if he didn't help. Sharon was shocked. She let him clean himself up and sleep it off for a couple hours, but she's like nervous about what's about to happen. Around 6 a.m. he finally told her, I'll call you in a couple days, and he just left. Sharon actually didn't tell the police this whole confession that he made until about 1988 after John died. She's a real ride or die. Yeah. I think she was also so done with, I think she was just done with his bullshit. I think honestly, Sharon was so over it that she's just like, fuck it at this point. I don't even know what to believe. Yeah. Well, she really loved him. And I think she was just of that mentality that like a woman sticks by her man, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, um, she, she never remarried. She said, and I think she even said that it was because like, she never stopped loving John. Oh, her theme song is Stand By Your Man. <laughs> After leaving Sharon's home, John returned to the motel where Don was waiting for him. Don had been waiting up for him all night and watching the news where she saw bodies being pulled out of the Wonderland house. Of course, she had never been inside, but she had been out front of it where John would like make her sit in the car under blankets like for hours on end waiting for him to come out. He was wearing different clothes from the night before and he appeared emotionally drained. He had left the night before feeling hopeful with a plan to sell the big block of drugs, but he came back without the drugs and without any money, and he looked defeated. Without saying much, he just grabbed a handful of volume and went to sleep. As he slept, he tossed and he turned and he shouted, blood, blood, so much blood. So in the morning, Don tried to ask him what he was dreaming about. She was like, well, you kept talking about blood and like you were screaming in your sleep. And he just gave her some bullshit story like, oh, yesterday I opened the trunk of my car and I hit my nose and I got a bloody nose. And like, I must have just been dreaming about that. 
And you can tell Don was just like, he's, he's fucking full of shit, but whatever. Like, I don't even care anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it didn't make sense, but I think she knew better than the pride. Like, it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. So they're sitting in bed watching the news, and Don is doing his nails. And suddenly, the doors were broken down by armed police officers. It must have taken them so long to get to him at that point, and that is just annoying. I believe they got to him on July 10th, so about 10 days that he and Don are just hanging out in a motel. And he's not telling her shit. So the police arrested John and Don, but they ended up letting Don go because, like, she did, she had nothing to do with it. So they asked her where they wanted her to take her, where they wanted them to take her, and she was like, I guess Sharon's house, because she literally had nobody else. Mm-hmm. And Sharon is just an angel to both of these people. Like, let's just be honest. Yeah, but remember, John convinced her that Sharon didn't care about her anymore. So she and, and the last time she went, Sharon didn't open the door. But this time she did, fortunately. I think that she always had a little, like, glimmer of hope with Sharon. Me too. I think part of it was because Sharon was a nurse and she wasn't just going to abandon somebody. Mm-hmm. Following the attack, the police learned about his connection to Eddie Nash when David Lynn went to the police and told them the whole story. Actually, David Lynn heard about the attacks from somebody named Jimmy Arias, a.k.a. Mr. Vegas, who I guess is a rock star. I guess this guy, Mr. Vegas, came to the property to put Ron on a plane because he had a court date in Sacramento and he didn't show up. So when he got to the house, he called David Lynn and told him, don't go to the house, everybody's dead. So David went to the police and told them, this might have something to do with the recent robbery that the gang committed at Eddie Nash's house. And he basically threw John Holmes under the bus. This would be the biggest homicide case for L.A. detectives since the Manson murders. John was questioned about the murders, and he pretty much told them a bunch of information he didn't care about. They said he was acting like he was playing a role in a movie, like trying to be a big shot, ordering the room service, like, look at me with my wife and my girlfriend. <laughs> Because, like, he ended up, like, being like, no, I need them both in witness protection. I need them both with me. And then he would show off to them with the room service and shit. Like, he was just acting this role of this celebrity. He was being a big shot. And I think at this point, I think Sharon is getting so angry. I think she was also scared because he made her feel, he probably convinced her that it wasn't his fault that he was the victim. Yeah. So... He was willing to sell out every name in the porn industry, but the police were like, we don't need that. We need I don't to give a fuck about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he thought because he had a con- he had connections with them in the past. Like, remember, I'm your old buddy. I can I can give you anybody you want in the porn industry. And they're like, that's we no. We need to put somebody away from murder. You know? Yeah, we're not like, here we, for that. And I'm sure they were trying to get Eddie Nash for something before and they probably couldn't nab him. Because mm-hmm. remember, he had all these scandals, not just with drug yeah. trafficking. They probably knew that he drug trafficked and like he probably had a but he, ton of criminal things going on. Exactly, he had all these charges of racketeering and arson and insurance fraud. So like, I'm sure somebody wanted to take him down. Mm-hmm. Well, John refused to go on the record and name Eddie Nash because he, you know, Eddie Nash threatened to go after everybody in his address book. So John was like, "There's no fucking way I'm going to talk mm-hmm. about him." But off the record, he was like, oh, yeah, Eddie did it. Eddie did all of it. But I'm not going to say that in front of in front of a jury. <laughs> so the police couldn't use that. They had no evidence to hold him, and they let him go. 
However, they told him not to leave town. Like, this is a federal homicide investigation. You've got to stay put. I bet he Well, John, Yeah, John was like, fuck that, because Eddie Nash is going to come kill me now that he knows that I've been talking to you. And it's funny, because it wasn't just Eddie Nash. There was actually, like, eight contracts out on, on John, because everybody knew what kind of person he was, and they were like, he could give up so many people or in the porn industry, in the drug industry, like, he and he would just said like save himself yeah <laughs> so john tried to convince don and sharon to run away with him and sharon straight up was like no like i'm not absolutely running away with you not absolutely friend. not sharon won't have it but he told don that she was going to meet them there later giving her a little glimmer of hope because oh, i don't know no. if don would have immediately agreed but she probably thought that it would be safe if sharon was there mm-hmm so John and Don packed up all their things to leave town and Don and Sharon both like dyed John's hair jet black and like cut it short because his afro was like a telltale sign that this is John fucking Holmes. Yeah, like let's make him not obvious. <laughs> yeah, because he insisted to the police, like put us in witness protection. And they were like, well, you're going to have to testify against Eddie Nash. And he was like, no. And they were like, well, then no. <laughs> They're like, just kidding. You don't get what you want. Mm. So John and Don packed up their car and like they spray painted it and they made plans to leave town. But first, John has this brilliant idea to go back to Eddie Nash and ask him for a thousand dollars. Is he fucking stupid? Swear to God. That's what Don said. She was like, this is a stupid fucking idea. You're going to get us both killed. <laughs> but John was like, I have a plan. Uh, so I'm going to tell Eddie Nash that if I don't return to you in 30 minutes, I'm going to be like, Don's going to go to the police. So I'm doing you a favor because I didn't go to the police. So you have to trust me. Like, I saved you. John's fucking crazy. Yeah, but anyway, no, he, 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 he lucked out because I guess for old time's sake or something, maybe Nash was like amused by the audacity. He told John, like, all right, come back in an hour and look in the mailbox. And sure enough, he left $500 there for John. And it seems like he told John to come back tomorrow for the rest. But John was like, I'm good. He was like, One no, this is, is good enough. enough. This exactly. is enough of a thrill for my adrenaline. Right. So Don and John leave town, and John was immediately put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. He was considered armed and drug crazed and running from questioning in a quadruple homicide investigation. They ended up driving to Florida and starting a new life in this little community that was pretty much, like, made for drifters like them. Because it was run by this lady named Big Rosie who gave them jobs in order for them to afford their rent. So John started doing, like, maintenance around the property. Because, remember, he was good at, like, he was good at that. And he was, like, the handyman at the apartment complex. And then Don would clean the rooms. And there was also some tenants who would, like, pay her to, like, babysit for a little while and stuff. It, it was going well for them, and especially because they were drug-free, they were kind of a normal couple, and Dawn kind of felt like everything was getting better. She was making were friends. They actually, were they actually, like, drug-free? Yeah, because, I mean, where were they going to get drugs from? They were on the run. Yeah. But the thing was, after a little while and they got settled in, John found the drugs again. I was going to say, there's something that makes me think that he's going to find them somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, like, jobs. John's job was for the apartment complex. It didn't pay him money. It paid for the rent. So eventually he got another job, like, in construction or painting houses or something and made his own little extra money there. And that's where he got his new connections again. But still, the money wasn't enough, and he eventually forced Don to start turning tricks again. 
Okay, Dawn was over this, and now she has to do it again. Poor thing. Not just over it. She she thinks they're both over it. She thinks they're mm. over the addiction and over all that. You know, it's not going to happen again because they're clean and they're happy now. It's a fresh start. Well, inevitably, this caused another fight between John and Dawn where things became violent and Dawn tried to escape. But this time it was super public because she had to run through the courtyard of the apartment complex in front of all the members of her community who were like having dinner nearby at the community pool. So she's straight up running through this courtyard and her like long brown hair is flowing behind her as she's running. And John reaches out and grabs her hair and drags her to the ground and just starts pummeling her. And everyone just sat still in shock, but stayed at their tables. Nobody went and helped her. That to me is so crazy. Like, she's still, even though she's 20, she's still young. And you see a grown-ass man hitting her and you're not even going to step in. Like, that's terrible. And not even step in to, like, fight for her just to, like, get her out of there, you know? Or call the police because he ends Mm -hmm. up dragging her back to the apartment and and finishing the attack there. So how come if nobody wants to physically step in in that moment, why not call the police and be like, hey, can you come check on this apartment? Because this guy was just pummeling on the girl. Yeah. No, that's terrible. Poor thing. Well, the next day, John got up and left for work with big puppy eyes, all sad. Right after he left, Big Rosie showed up with a couple members of the community, and they finally came to rescue Dawn. Well, thank God for that. Mm-hmm. Better late than never. Mm-hmm. So one of the members of her community um, was this lady who was a stripper, and she had a young child, and she was going through a divorce. Well, I, I guess her divorce had just been finalized, and she got a house in the settlement. So she told Dawn, you can come live with me in exchange for continuing to take care of my child so I can work. Like, you get free rent for taking care of my baby nobody's gonna know where we live nobody has your number he can't find you and basically they all basically you're safe basically you're Mm -hmm. safe Mm -hmm. exactly so they all pulled together to get her in a new place and when john came home from work she was no longer there but that didn't exactly calm dawn's nerves because remember she wasn't just hiding from john she was also she believed she was also hiding from eddie nash and the police and who knows who else had a contract on them She's probably got a million thoughts of worry going through her head. Mm-hmm. And John's thrown her under the bus before, too, like with Michelle. So even though she, logically, you can tell yourself, why would the police be out for me? Why would all these people be out for me? I'm sure she's like, I know what John's capable of and what he'll do to other people. Like, mm-hmm. not just what he'll do, but the fact that everybody believes him. That's crazy. Because he's such a good actor, right? eventually Dawn got in contact with her family and she let them know where she was but you know how that is how like you're on the run so the police is going to tap the phones of anybody you could potentially call starting with your family Mm -hmm. so one day Dawn gets a call from her brother Wayne and he asked if he could come up to visit her and she was super excited but when she went out to meet with him she realized it was a setup and the police were actually waiting for her to give up John's whereabouts Oh. At first, she was mad. She was like, I'm going to get fucking killed because of you. But her brother convinced him, like, no, the police don't want you. They want John. So she Mm -hmm. finally talked to the police, and they explained to her, like, I know you're worried about him, but he's not safe as long as he's out on the run. Like, somebody's going to kill him. It's better for him to be in custody. And I think that was them. They they touched her soft spot. They figured it out how the only Mm -hmm. way she was going to give him up was if she thought it was going to be better 
than letting him be on the run. Well, yeah, and I mean, again, she's been so manipulated by this man for so long that she's she believes anything. Yeah, I think the only reason she said it was to protect him. I mean, she wouldn't have given mm-hmm. up his whereabouts if she didn't truly believe that she was protecting him. Right. So the police show up at John's motel and they knock on his door and he opens the door. He's like watching reruns of Gilligan's Island and he's like, I've been expecting you. Would you like some coffee? all nonchalant because he probably thought he was just going to go back to another hotel with room service and he was going to get to act like a big shot again he didn't realize that they're fucking sick of his shit by now and he's just they are so over it everyone is so over it the police were just like this motherfucker is still acting cool when he's literally (laughs) offered us nothing well he offered them coffee So Don ended up getting in touch with her father again, who by now had just gotten a whole new girlfriend who was just a couple of years older than Don. Gross. Is it any wonder that she doesn't know what a functional relationship looks like? Yeah. Like, look around her. Poor thing. And at this point, she's probably, what, maybe 21 now? She's between 20 and 21. Okay. So her father told her that he and his girlfriend were planning on buying a beach resort in Thailand and they wanted to know if she wanted to join them. And she agreed because, like, this is a great opportunity not only for her to escape because she really thinks that she's still on the run, that people are going to kill her. Um, And she probably wants to put the past behind her. And this Mm -hmm. is a great opportunity for her to finally be with her dad again and, like, maybe do something together. Right. Yeah, have that, have that, I guess, start of a father-daughter relationship that she had hoped for. Mm-hmm. She spent the next seven years in Thailand, um, and eventually her dad ended up dipping again, just leaving her there. So, Oh, cool. Mm. You know, like, just leave your daughter in another country. <laughs> I mean, at least she's an adult now, but she yeah. ended up, like, finishing the job doing her own little resort thing in Thailand. And after seven years of living there, she returned to the United States with every intention to confront John and show him how good her life was and how successful she had become without him. But he died before she was able to make it. I'm saying all in the point that she probably, even though she probably didn't need to do that, I feel like for her soul, she had earned for like wanted that so bad. She really wanted to like, defend herself for some reason and i i feel for her on that yeah i think it was more for her than for him that she had to tell herself like he was wrong about me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and sharon even told her you don't need to tell him anyway he's not worth it no sharon's such an angel i swear sharon and don reconnected in 1988 after john died They would both go on to work as the consultants on the 2003 film Wonderland. Sharon, it was said that Sharon had breakdowns on the set of the film. Poor thing. I bet. I bet it was really traumatic for both of them. I would say, I would think so. I would think so. I mean, they're reliving probably one of the most traumatic parts of their own personal lives. And now it's going to be recreated on screen and portrayed right in front of them as they're watching probably behind the camera. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you guys haven't seen Wonderland, you really got to watch it. It's um, it's like an all-star cast. Everybody in it is fucking wonderful. Um, Val Kilmer plays John Holmes, and he doesn't really look like him at all. <laughs> but he did a fantastic job. And, like, Don and Sharon in real life on the film say that, like, he completely embodied it and just, like, nailed it. 
I was going to say his character portrayal is really good. I I can see why you think he doesn't look like that. I, I, I agree. But I think any other person to play him would not have pulled it off character-like wise as well. And yeah, I think that really Lisa Kudrow deserves like so many props for playing Sharon because I think she did a fantastic job. She did, especially if especially if you're used to seeing Lisa Kudrow, <laughs> Lisa Kudrow, Lisa Kudrow in comedic roles. Sharon mm-hmm. was just it wasn't even bitchy. It was it was like stoic and 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 not just serious, mm-hmm. but almost like you got the impression I- that she knew shit about John that the rest of us didn't. And I feel like it was, I feel like it was almost like she was a, not necessarily a dark, I think it was a dark thing though. I think maybe their relationship was darker than it portrayed. So I think in a sense, Lisa Kudrow, maybe from what I heard, I know she had private conversations with like the real Sharon. So I don't know if some of that portrayed out of like anger and disappointment as well. You know what I mean? I'm sure. That's what was so fucking good about it. It's like Ugh, so good. I don't know. You don't you don't see it as like it's resting bitch face. You see it as like she knows this guy. You know, there's she's upset for something that we they haven't told us yet. And I feel like there always is, like you said, there's a she always loves him, but I feel like there's always a like a look of concern for him, still with that like what did you do now sort of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. So John was tried for the murders, but the only evidence they had against him was his handprint on the bed rail by Ron's head. And all the handprint proved was that he was present at the scene, either during or after the attack, which didn't really prove anything. Especially because there was people waltzing in and out and like John's DNA had to have been there because he had been in the house like he had spent nights there. The judge in the trial ruled that the defense couldn't contend that Holmes was forced to help the killers because they threatened him and his family. So they considered this um, under duress defense, saying, like, even if he did have something to do with it, it's he he couldn't be considered the killer. Like he was under duress and that's the only reason he had any involvement. That's what the judge said. Um, OK, I don't know about that. I think he threw both of them under the bus and just was trying to play the sides. Yeah, but as far as the murder, that doesn't prove murder, you know what I mean? As far as the murder of goes, course. we can't prove that John wanted to go and kill anybody or had any intent. So even if there was a handprint there and, like, even if he was at the crime scene, it doesn't... It doesn't mean he did it. There's too much evidence that he was forced to do it. Got it. And it, and it, it makes sense, because if they were going to go after his family and everything, that's enough motive for anybody to do it, you know? I'm going right. to kill one person so that my other five don't get killed, you know? Right. John was acquitted of all charges, but he was held in contempt for refusing to testify. And so he was sentenced to 110 days in jail. John was released in the early 80s with $100 and a little car that was given to him by his lawyer. He drove directly to the home of porn producer Bill Emerson, who had a room waiting for him, and welcomed him back into the porn industry, gave him a little comeback. And John also became the godfather to his kids. So, like, this whole family speaks really highly of him. That's gross. By 1993, John was sober for the most part. He did freebase a few times, but mostly just smoked pot. pot. According to his later wife, Misty Dawn, he he did, like, freebase a couple times or do coke here and there, but he at least, like, 
he learned a lot from his experience and told himself, like, this isn't something that I bring to work or that affects my job or my life. It's like, if I do it, it absolutely is not on the production of a set. So at least he learned something there. Mm-hmm. So his wife, Missy Dawn, was another porn actress that he met when she was 19 years old. Everyone agrees that she looks just like Dawn. But John helped her raise her young son, and she describes him as a wonderful stepfather. She also describes him as a mentor to both of them. That's weird. I will say this about Miss Cedon. One of the things I always say about, like, age difference, it's not so much that the age is a problem, if, but rather the power dynamic. And I don't know enough about these people, but the difference with Miss Cedon and Dawn is, like, one, Dawn was a virgin. She had never... Um, been exposed to pornography or sex and she was all alone in the world as opposed to missy dawn like she might have been 19 but she was a porn actress who chose to be a porn actress she was already on her own raising a kid she wasn't a virgin when she met john it was just totally different you know Mm -hmm. yeah i could see that i mean i'm not saying whether misty right misty dawn is right or wrong like there are things she says that totally makes it seem yeah, like okay sure. but you're failing to see that he's trying to be your father figure like i can see that and i mean who knows at this point because he wasn't doing as many drugs had he not changed his like attitude and who he was maybe he was being better i don't know we don't know right but at the very least like we can be happy that he was no longer abusing Dawn or fucking around mm-hmm. on Sharon. He got married and by Missy Dawn's accounts, he was a wonderful husband and father or stepfather. So if nothing else, at least he ended it with her. Mm-hmm. Sharon finally divorced John in 1984. It seems that the murders were the final straw for her because remember, she had a deep respect for human life. Remember how she like really got mad at Dawn when she attempted suicide? So she likely lost all respect for John just for having part in the deaths of four people and nearly a fifth. Yeah. In the mid-80s, John had contracted HIV right when the disease was starting to become known to the mainstream media. The company he was working for implemented a testing policy that everyone agreed to, but John tested under a fake name to avoid being discovered. He started showing symptoms like bleeding from his ears, and his penis would break out into a rash and bleed if he had sex long enough. John Holmes would be the first well-known porn star to test positive for AIDS. Despite his diagnosis, John continued to perform in pornographic films without protection. John's company even released a statement saying that John had been suffering from colon cancer. Obviously a cover. Mm-hmm. The police tried and tried and tried to take down Eddie Nash. After the Wonderland murders, they kept a close eye on him, and they raided his house a bunch of times. But, like, he he always was able to make bail, so it was really hard to keep him. Still, they tried every chance they could. They referred to him as the one who got away. (laughs) Great white buffalo. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) On July 10th, 1981, the police raided his home, resulting in a shootout between police and Dials. And then on November 25th, a 24-year-old former employee of Nash named Dominic Fragamelli had been staying at Nash's house for five months, and he was suddenly found dead of an overdose. So police used that as legal basis to perform another raid on his home, and that resulted in in another shootout. They found nearly two pounds of cocaine and heroin, quaaludes, and opium. Nash's legal team tried to argue that the drugs were for his own personal consumption and not for selling. But that didn't work. (laughs) 
yeah a whole lot they were like no this is fine <laughs> it's just it's just my daily cocktail i'm like come on <laughs> so nash and dials were both arrested on narcotics charges in 1982, Eddie Nash would be convicted of seven drug charges and sentenced to eight years in state prison. During the trial, he would go out to his car and smoke freebase, and then he would swallow quaaludes before coming back to even himself out. His lawyer hired somebody to follow him around and poke him with a pin in case he nodded off. <laughs> That's classy. <laughs> so he was sentenced to eight years. However, his sentence was reduced to time served, and he was let out in 1984 because of good behavior and also because he had health problems from a tumor in his sinus cavity. Cocaine will do that to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in 1988, John was visited one last time on his deathbed by Detective Tom Lang, who was still trying to put Eddie Nash away for the, for the Wonderland murders. John still refused to divulge any information. Actually, they went to the hospital to question him for the final time, and he pretended to be coherent. I didn't realize this part until just today. I was reading it in the book. Mm -hmm. Lori says that she's in the hospital with John, and they know the police are coming. So she's like, hey, John, Detective Lang's here. And John's like, okay, puts out a cigarette, and he leans back and closes his eyes. And then Tom Lang was like, he was incoherent. <laughs> that is ridiculous. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Actor, remember acting. <laughs> Just before dying, he asked his wife, Misty Dawn, to view his body and make sure nobody had cut off his dick before burying him. Oh, my God. This was something that Sharon and Dawn knew about, too, because I guess he told all of them, like, before I die, make sure nobody cuts off my dick. Like, make sure my dick is still intact, because he really thought that some pervert was going to, like, put it in a jar on a shelf in their house. What is that, like an old wives' tale they used to tell them? Like, like if you keep acting like this, they're going to cut your dick off and keep it in a jar? I wonder where he got that. I mean, maybe like, it was the age when he, he started, when he started oh. bleeding and everything. Maybe he started. But no, I guess he started saying that way before. That's, that's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's why I'm like, because it was said way before. So who told him that or what made him think that? <laughs> mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1988, after John died, that Sharon finally told the police all about the confession that he had made in her bathtub. She also told James Cox, who was the director for the Wonderland movie, that she believed John had committed at least one of those murders himself. Considering the fact that Sharon knew John better than anyone, and she was standing face-to-face -face with him within an hour of the murders, I really wonder what made her say that. Yeah, I really wonder... Just six months after John's death, police went after Scott Thorson for drug charges and offered him a deal for a shorter sentence in exchange for information that could put away Eddie Nash. Thorson would testify that he was at Eddie's house when Eddie ordered John and Dials to go out and kill the Wonderland gang. In 1988, Nash and Dials were charged with the murders. Tracy McCourt, the getaway driver, he was brought in to testify, and the police offered protection to him and his wife during the trial. Now, Thorson and McCourt are good witnesses, and yet the trial ended with the hung jury of 11 to 1. We'll find out later that Nash bribed the one juror who held out with $50,000. Oh, my God. Out of curiosity, I wonder how he got that done at that time. Like, did he have one of his guys just go to this particular juror or whatever and be like, hey, if you do this, we'll give you this much money? I'm sure, because it was organized crime, so it, it's like it's a whole organization, you know? There's yeah. a whole ladder. 
In 2000, Eddie Nash was indicted on federal charges for running a drug dealing and money laundering operation, conspiring to carry out the Wonderland murders, and bribing one of the jury's jurors of his first trial. He ended up admitting that he ordered his men to go to the Wonderland house to retrieve his stolen belongings, but insists that he did not order them to commit murder. He was offered a plea deal and ended up pleading guilty and was sentenced to 4.5 years in prison and ordered to pay $250,000. He ended up serving one year. Allegedly, though, he turned his life around, started living a modest life, and ended his life of crime. I think it's more likely he just got good at doing it privately. <laughs> he took himself off the grid for a while. Yeah, who lives Who lives a life like that and then just leaves it behind? No, I think that's what he He's wants like, us to think. Please, guys. This, that's that's the only way to get the police office back. Like, okay, I'm done. You got you got me. <laughs> I'm done, guys. I don't want to play anymore. Eddie Nash died in 2014 at the age of 85. Though well, no one was ever charged. Very long life. Yeah. With all that coke and drug, like I'm shocked that he was that age. Mm-hmm. Though no one was ever charged with the crime, police are confident that Eddie Nash was behind the murders and simply failed to successfully charge him. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Yeah. And that's the story of John Holmes and the Wonderland murders. Yay! We did it. We did it. Looks guys. like we made it. <laughs> part two, take two. We did it. Part two, part two, part two, part two, part two. What did I say that was from? SpongeBob? I don't I know. Think so, yeah. I don't I know. So. <laughs> I've got a I head full like of sound effects. I think it was SpongeBob. I don't think he probably didn't even say part two. He probably said something else. Anyway, well, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. I hope everybody enjoyed it. This is going to be so long. Once again, I just want to share um, my sources. The first one is the book by Don Schiller called The Road Through Wonderland. The second one is called John Holmes, A Life Measured in Inches. That one's cool because it's got a bunch of quotes from a bunch of people in it. Um, also, I listened to the Morbid podcast and last podcast on the left. Both of them did great research, and there was one more. Oh, yeah, I found a sweet website. Let me see what it is. So this website is actually a blog created by a guy who was going to write a book about this case, and I don't know if he ever did write the book, but the blog is endless, and it actually includes, like, one of the author of this book, uh, A Life Measured in Inches. Like, she leaves comments on here. Bill Deverell's son has, like, left comments on here. So, like, there's a lot of intel here. Anyway, if you want to look at that website, I'll link it on Broken Limelight. But in the meantime, it's wonderland1981.wordpress.com. And that's it. Yay. Okay, thank you so much, Celeste, for being here. It was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for sticking by for these two long, long episodes. I hope it was worth the wait. Don't forget that you can go to BrokenLimelight.com to look at pictures and videos of this episode, as well as all my links to all my sources and a almost complete transcript. Please subscribe to my YouTube if you haven't yet. Just look up DD West and you'll see there, um, apart from my performance clips, I also have the Broken Limelight podcast on there. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube as well as YouTube Music now. You can also follow me, DD West, at uh, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, or you can look up Broken Limelight on Facebook and Instagram. What else? That's it. BrokenLimelight.com. If you need anything else, it'll be there. All right, fam. Until next time. Bye. Sorry, how old was David Lind? I don't remember. Do we know? Okay. <laughs>
Definitely way older than 22, I assume, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 